Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef Kevin Cottrell. He's the executive chef and co-owner of Machete in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he also has a forthcoming concept called Yokai, which will be located in Greensboro too as well and opening sometime this year. But I wanted to have Kevin on. I first learned about him from the Michael Knoll podcast that we did previously. Uh, Michael Knoll is the executive chef co-owner of Bardo and Vana in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he was on a few months ago. We had a great time at his restaurant, but the place that he recommended when we get to kind of the last set of questions there, kind of the 10 burning questions at the end, place that he wanted to go and eat was Machete, which was not too far, kind of the opposite ends of the state there. Checked out Machete, always down to get recommendations from you know guests and chefs, and the food looked amazing, and it was just kind of weird that it was placed in Greensboro, North Carolina. Greensboro isn't a destination city by any means. It's not a food destination. Kevin and I kind of talk about it um, over the course of the episode. Just being there in Greensboro just kind of struck me as very odd, and it made me remember those times when you kind of lived or were staying in this middle of nowhere, small town or whatever, and the place has like three good restaurants, and you have your favorite of those three, and if one of them ever closes, you're just kind of like devastated because you're like, well, where do I go eat now? I had that happen actually to me. Luckily, the place closed after I left there, but it does happen, and I think we all kind of forget that you know we live a lot of us in or around a city where there's all these different food options. But when you live in small town or a small city or kind of middle of nowhere, you don't have a whole lot of food options. So when you get a great one that's doing amazing things, regardless of their location, and they wind up near you, you kind of have to treasure it. You kind of have to support them as much as you can so they stay in business because otherwise you're going to have kind of nothing to look forward to if eating out is something that you enjoy. So that's kind of the basis for this episode. And we talk about Kevin's career, you know, how he got his start um, working for a couple different, you know, kind of high profile restaurants that found their way to different areas in North Carolina too, as well, before starting his own thing and the challenges that have gone on with Machete and being in Greensboro and what he's got coming up with, you know, the new concept, Yokai and everything. So you can follow him on Instagram. It's at Kevin Cottrell, all one word there. You can also follow the restaurants. It's at Machete GSO and then also at Yokai GSO. You can follow us on Instagram too as well, at Spoon Mob. We're on all the other social media. Uh, either it's at Spoon Mob or at Spoon Mob One, but mainly use the Instagram account kind of to put out food photos and podcast updates and all that stuff. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. We have all the chefs and guests, sommeliers, whatever, um, whoever's come on the podcast. They all have different pages up there. Uh, we have links to all their episodes, different food photos, any updates that they've had since they've come on the podcast too as well. So you can find all that stuff up there as well as a contact portal to submit any questions, comments, feedback, uh, what have you. Also, make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you use. Uh, we're on all of them, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, Stitcher, whatever. You can find us everywhere. You can either use the link in our Instagram bio through the link tree. We usually put out a link with every new episode too as well, or you can go to either the website and click through that way, or just search Spoon Mob on whatever preferred app that you're using, and then just hit the little check mark uh, follow button there. All the episodes drop Thursday, 1 a.m. is when the new ones come out, so you want to make sure you're follow, subscribe, so they just download straight in your feed, and that way you can wake up in the morning, come into your office, or just kind of doing stuff around the house, whatever. You can listen to the podcast, latest episode, um, while you're kind of doing all that, because that's kind of how most people consume podcasts these days. So that's the best way to kind of get all the latest information. You can also go through the back catalog too as well, if there's anything that you missed or you just kind of recently discovered the podcast too as well. Without any further delays, here's my conversation with Chef Kevin Cottrell, the chef and co-owner of Machete and Yokai in Greensboro, North Carolina. 
thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day to jump on and talk about your career and restaurants and everything. I first kind of learned about you and your restaurant there, Machete, uh, from Michael Knoll, who was on this podcast a little while ago. Uh, it was one of the restaurants that he recommended checking out, uh, if ever, in the Greensboro area and, and making the trek over there. Possible we might be in the Greensboro, Asheville, that whole region. And we have some friends who moved down there recently, so we might uh, figuring out if we can put a trip together and see them sometime this fall and everything. So, but been following the Instagram account and your restaurant since, and the food looks amazing. Just super unique too, as well. Like there's not really anything like it in Greensboro and Greensboro is not exactly, I don't think a destination probably for a lot of people, but I want to get into all that and kind of, you know, how you wound up there and what you guys got going on now. I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. How did you kind of first get involved with cooking? Was it something that was in your family? Did you just kind of fall into it in high school? Like how did all that come together? You know, I've talked about it with my parents before and they don't know where it came from. We kind of grew up, you know, hamburger helper. Dad would grill out every once in a while, but no real like huge cooks in my family. I was always interested in it as a kid. That just kind of increased as I got older. It got to a point where I was just cooking dinner every night for the family, you know, in my high school years. So I don't really know where it came from. Uh, there's a picture of me when I'm like a baby and I have this like play kitchen set. And we're like, oh, that's where that came from. But yeah, there's something about working with food that I've always loved. I, I started out when I was 15, 16. My parents were like, get a job. So I worked in a produce department at like a local southern like grocery store chain here called Lowe's Foods. And I loved just like cutting stuff, you know, working with any type of food I could. And so as soon as I graduated high school, I was like, I want to do something real with food. And it kind of just started there. When you're working at the produce department, looking back on it now, did you realize just how much like stuff gets thrown away? Oh, yeah. Lowe's Foods is actually a lot better than I've heard other places like that are. They have a way to use byproduct, right? You know, they'll put it in those like I don't know what they call them now, like the chef ready kits, you know, for, for home cooks. So basically like instead of buying a bell pepper, you can buy it already diced, which is crazy to me. Stuff like that. They were better at the no waste thing than a lot of places probably are. But still, I mean, yeah, you go to the back of the warehouse and there's a lot of waste in grocery stores. Once you kind of graduate high school, what happens then? I think you wind up going to the Culinary Institute at Virginia College. You were working like before that, we're working at a oyster bar, right? And you were also working at a restaurant called Anton. So I think you were actually a head chef too, which is odd that in your career, you were a head chef before going to culinary school, which is not usually the case for people. So I wouldn't say I was qualified in any way to be the head chef. It was just kind of a, it was one of those places where they're like, let's find the cheapest guy, get him in charge of everything, overwork him. My first restaurant job was at at like an oyster bar, I got thrown on the steamer station. I was just doing these big like oyster pots. It was a brand new restaurant, so it was slam busy. Uh, and I just fell in love with like working the line. You know, every time you open the steamer, I'm in this like small little square corner. So every time I open the steamer, I'm just getting blasted in the face. It's like instant sunburn. And I just, something about that I just love. So I worked there for like a year. It was, kind of basic, just fish fry, you know, steamer pots and stuff like that. And then one of my buddies reached out to me from high school and his dad 
was kind of like a big name chef in Greensboro. He was like, yeah, if you're interested, like come work for him, you'll learn a lot more than, than where you're at. And so I was like, absolutely. You know, at the time I was like, any opportunity to learn, I'll take it. And so that was when I went to Anton's, the chef that brought me on, uh, had partnered with the owner of Anton's to kind of modernize it a little bit, get some new people in the door. And so he wanted to put kind of his French experience and touch on everything along with serving the kind of traditional Italian menu, which I, you know, is a little weird, but I was like, let's do it. Let's, you know, classic French. Like, I don't know anything about that. Let's do it. So he kind of took me under his wing. I learned all of the basics there, you know, that was basically like culinary school for me and I loved it. And yeah, I did kind of just get thrown into, you know, management and, you know, the head chef title, I guess, even though I had no idea what that entailed. But I was like, yeah, I, I just said yes to everything. So as long as I was learning and growing, you know, I, I didn't really care what they paid me or or what my title was. But it was a great experience overall. I got all of the basics there. Kind of really the only reason I went to a culinary program was, is you know, Greensboro at the time, it seemed like the only way to get a better paying position at any restaurant in Greensboro was if you had some sort of uh, formal experience on your resume, like a culinary school. And I was younger, so I didn't really know, you know, culinary school doesn't matter too much. It's it's more about your character and, and your passion for what you're doing. I just thought, you know, I needed that on my resume. It was like an associate program. It wasn't like a four-year college or anything. And I had a great experience there. It, I, I definitely learned a lot about like baking and that side of things that I had no experience with. So I, I really just took as much out of it as I could and brought it into the industry. So. Did you choose uh, Virginia College just because it was close or because it was a two-year program instead of a four-year program? Yeah, it was close. It was cheap. It was quick. And it fit with my schedule because, you know, I was working two restaurant jobs at the time anyway. So what am I capable of doing just to get something on my resume to make me a little bit more competitive? So based on your experience and running a restaurant now, if someone in your kitchen came up to you and was like, hey, I want to be a professional chef one day. I want to own my own restaurant. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? I would tell them that First off, if they don't have any experience in the industry, that that's your first step. You know, I wish every culinary school to get in, they required some level of restaurant experience, but then they probably wouldn't make much money because we both probably know that many culinary school graduates are no longer in the industry, right? Uh, it's just one of those things people will get this like, they graduate and then they have this high expectation of what they're going into. And then it's like a huge culture shock right? If they don't have any real life experience. I've had a lot of graduates where whether it's here at Machete or a previous job, they, they wanted to get their foot in the door after graduating culinary school. And for whatever reason, it just wasn't for them. You know, the pace, the night hours, basically. So it's not for a lot of people. I, I wish that more culinary school or people that are interested in school would at least get some sort of real life experience. I think that's super important. So after you complete culinary school, like you mentioned, you kind of work in the two jobs. You eventually wind up, I think, at GIA Drink, Eat, Listen and Real Seafood Grill, like kind of simultaneously. I think you're kind of working two places. So what happened there? Why did you wind up working there and why two jobs at the same time? They were right across the street from each other. So when I was at Anton's, Gia was a, a place that was, I saw somewhere, uh, probably Craigslist at the time, that they were looking for people. They, were, they hadn't opened yet. 
um, but it was definitely like the first modern-ish restaurant to open in Greensboro. They were very like, this was like before, you know, Machete were a small plates restaurant. We don't call it tapas, but this was when like tapas was like booming. It's like every place wanted to be a tapas restaurant. And that's kind of what Gia sold themselves as, even though they're, they're more of a small plate restaurant than tapas. But I looked at, you know, some of their food pictures and stuff. And I, I was like, this is awesome. This is a lot cooler than where I'm at right now. You know, at the time I was all about on to the next, like, if I'm not learning, I'm going somewhere else. And so, yeah, I started at Gio when they first opened and was learning a lot there. Loved what they were doing. The only reason I got another job place across the street, I needed to make more money. I, I worked two to three jobs for as long as I could until I was like, man, I'm getting a little older. I just can't do this. But yeah, so that was the reason kind of with that, I just needed the extra income. And that was actually when I when I was at GIA and Real Seafood Grill, that was when I did the culinary program. So when you're working two jobs like that or two, three jobs, you know, because I think people kind of forget that's a commonplace thing in the industry. Looking back on it, were there days when it was just like you forgot kind of like which place you were at? You know, you're working and maybe always kind of doing, you know, morning prep or whatever. And then, you know, you wind up going to the other restaurant and then you're like doing something and you're like, wait, no, that's for the other place. I always had like a yin yang whenever I worked two jobs. One of them was kind of like autopilot and one of them was like, you know, this is where we're doing the cool stuff. So this is where I'm actively interested. And then the other place is like, I can grill fish with my eyes closed. You know, we're doing 300 people a night, but it's all just like grill a piece of fish, throw a salsa on it or whatever, you know, there's nothing really like super composed about it. So it was really just kind of turn and burn that place. I'm just kind of like having fun, chilling, you know, restaurant culture. And then I have my other place where I'm like actively interested in what we're doing because I don't fully understand it. I'm like learning and, you know, Gia had like cookbooks there, you know, of all of our favorite chefs and stuff like that. That was kind of a breeding ground for learning and more modern food. So did you ever leave Greensboro to work anywhere else or did you ever consider it? You have Charlotte and Raleigh are kind of the, probably the big food cities in North Carolina. But then, I mean, Tennessee's not too far away. Charleston's not ridiculously far away. Atlanta's a big market. So like, did you ever consider leaving Greensboro? Commuted to Chapel Hill for a little bit. And, I, you know, when I was younger, I didn't really know what a food city was. I, I didn't really know. You know, I only knew as much as people told me. So I did at the end of culinary school, I was just looking at Craigslist one day because that was where you found all your jobs back then. And I saw a place in Chapel Hill called One Restaurant, and they had been taken over by two new chefs. They were leadership at restaurant at Meadowood in Napa Valley. It was Chef Kim Floresca and Daniel Ryan. Uh, and I believe Chef Kim was the CEC at uh, restaurant Meadowood. I don't know why they came to Chapel Hill. And I don't think at the time Chapel Hill was ready for what they were doing. But when I saw the pictures of what they were doing, I was like, I left everything. I, I quit both of my jobs. And I was like, I got to go do this. So I, I talked to them over the phone. They hired me. I put in my two weeks at both of my jobs. And so I commuted to Chapel Hill for a while. And that's about like hour, hour and 15 minute drive. But I would say that was a turning point in my career. Working for them was one of the most humiliating things that I've ever been in because I was just kidding. It was a, like a completely different world, right? And they were ripping into me every day. You know, I, di I didn't know about cutting labels and stuff like that. So it's like every single thing I'm doing wrong. But 
also learning at the same time. I would say that job impacted my career more than anything else. And also just the way that I carry myself today. And I'll forever be thankful for them. Granted, they didn't stay in Chapel Hill for that long. I think that they realized, you know, they were kind of in the wrong city for that. I definitely am am so glad I was just in the right place and the right time to work for them for a little bit. Yeah. Did you pick up on that like yourself when you're working there and you're just kind of looking around and like, you know, you probably feel like this is a little bit out of your league and you're like, and we're in Chapel Hill. Like, this doesn't, it's like, do they know that what this area is? You know, it's Chapel Hill and like the triangle. I would say Raleigh's the bigger food city than Chapel Hill, but Chapel Hill's kind of deceiving because it is a huge money town, you know, and you've got like the college basketball rivalry, which obviously brings in a ton of money and, and wealth to that city. So naturally, there should be some really high end restaurants to cater to to people that really want to spend money. And I think all they really have now is is a place called Heron's, which is like if Michelin came to North Carolina, they would be a Michelin star restaurant. But yeah, it, it's a deceiving city because like what they were doing probably should have worked. But I think it was just a location. It was in like a Harris Teeter shopping center. Chapel Hill's kind of weird. You know, there's no central area for like restaurants, you know, just buzzing little restaurant area. It's, it's super spread out. So everyone that wants to come to your restaurant has got to commute somehow. And I think that's a big thing that determines like a big food city. You know, Asheville, it's like everything's in this small radius, right? Same with like, you know, Nashville, like all the big restaurants are in like their one specific area. You know, Nashville's grown a lot. So there's there's more areas now, but Chapel Hill's not super centralized. So for whatever reason, what they were doing was just a little too much for that time. I think that was like, 2015. So then after your stint there, I think you wind up becoming an executive sous chef, right, at LaRue. So what led to kind of joining that restaurant, working there? When I came back, you know, I I couldn't commute to Chapel Hill anymore. I had car trouble and, you know, one wasn't really a well-paying job. It was more, it was all about just, I probably would have paid to work there at the time. You know, at a point, I just couldn't afford it anymore. I I was like, I got to get a job in Greensboro. And then a chef who had worked for Wilder Dufresne had moved to Greensboro and he had opened a place called LaRue. And it was this cool little like shotgun bar, 20 seat restaurant downtown. They had a vac sealer. They had the sous vide stuff. We didn't have like a hood vent or anything. So everything was just like electric and, and trying to find the most modern, efficient ways to do stuff. I was attracted to that immediately, especially coming from one Gia before that. So I came in, uh, they saw my resume, they saw where I worked, they were like, you're hired. I did stage there for a little bit and then eventually they hired me. And what's funny is the day they hired me, I got in a really bad car wreck and I was like unable to walk for like a month and a half, two months. So they hired me and then I couldn't work there for like two months. But as soon as I recovered from that, uh, I went right in. I kind of got full reign to put whatever I wanted on the menu. Um, so I started with desserts and did like some cool, just like plated desserts, you know, which nobody was doing in town. Everybody's doing like a slice of cheesecake, a slice of chocolate cake with sauce or whatever. So I was like, let's do some like stuff that I've seen that nobody's doing here. And from there, I kind of got full reign on the menu to do savory, sweet, whatever. Uh, unfortunately with LaRue, the owner kind of partnered with some other guy who wanted to come in and invest in us. We ended up moving to a bigger location that wasn't really great for like the style of food we were doing. 
Uh, it was like a huge location. And then for whatever reason, they didn't get along. There was some some shady stuff that happened between the two of them. So the original owner that had hired me for the original Aru parted ways. And so I was kind of stuck with this guy who had no restaurant experience or anything. To be honest, I think it was like a money laundering thing for him. And he ended up cutting me out and turning it into like a sushi and hamburgers place. They cleaned house. They they didn't want you know, my salary on payroll anymore. It was a, uh, it was fun while it lasted until, you know, he was like, let's do sushi and burgers. And I was like, all right, mentally I'm out of here. When you wind up, you know, leaving there, where does the idea for Machete come from? Like, when does that kind of start? Does that something that you were thinking about previously and just kind of always tinkering with, or was it once you left LaRue, it was like, all right, what do I really want to do next? I realized that LaRue wasn't going to last in the sense that it was i was already you know at least mentally on my way out i was looking at my next move which was going to be a big move like chicago or nashville and right towards the end of leaving LaRue, i met my who is now my one of my best friends and business partner tao who you know we opened machete together uh he started coming into Larue. he had just moved back from san francisco uh, he was kind of in the tech world. He was one of the founders of IGN video game company. Uh, he was also one of the core investors for Lazy Bear out in San Francisco. Um, and their whole concept is supper club tasting menu type thing. You know, the way he put it was the food that we were doing at LaRue was kind of the closest he had had to the San Francisco food scene. And, you know, he was all about it. I loved him immediately because he would just come in the kitchen and talk about food in a way that, you know, none of our other guests really appreciated. You could just tell he was like super excited about food in general. And so we ended up, you know, we'd get drinks every now and then. He kind of saw that I was underappreciated at LaRue. Eventually one night we were just kind of sitting at the bar and we were like, let's do something. Like, let's try something out, you know. And from there, we just started talking more and more and more. And then after, you know, LaRue and I parted ways. He was just like, listen, he was currently building his new home here in Greensboro in the kitchen. And like, they've got this like workout room, living room area. And we were like, let's do a supper club here. He's got a nice enough home kitchen to be able to do like some dinners and stuff. So we were like, absolutely. We advertised our first supper club for, I think it was like 25 seats. We sold out immediately. Man, that was a learning curve, you know, doing a 10 course menu out of a home kitchen. But we did it and we were like, we were successful. We went, I think, from we opened our MailChimp account to do the mailing list and we went from like nothing to like a thousand people within, you know, right after our first little supper club that we did. So it, we just kind of hit the ground running with that and we were all super in sync on what we wanted to do uh, from the beginning. So from there, we, for about a year and a half, every month, we would do two nights back to back and we would do a different theme every month. And it'd be around 10 courses, 30 people a night. Uh, I think we did like a Hawaiian barbecue theme. We did a Halloween theme where all the dishes were named after like four movies. We did kind of like a Japanese Kaiseki style theme. But we were really just trying to, you know, get our name out, but also test the waters and of different concept styles and different food styles that we might potentially want to do in the future because there was no real like risk there. We were kind of just doing it for fun, but we built such a following that we were like, why not? And I would say towards the end of that run, 
you know, a year and a half later, one of our good chef friends uh, at a restaurant called Crafted Street Food. She needed to focus more on her other restaurant. So she wanted to get out of it, basically. So she was like, I've got a turn and key for you guys if you're interested. And we were like, it's time. Let's do it. So up until she makes that kind of offer with everything, which we're going to get to, but were you guys thinking that you'd wind up looking for a space or were you in the middle of kind of looking for a space while you were doing kind of the dinner series out of the home there? You know, before we started the supper clubs, we had already decided on the name Machete. So like we had our our vision and our concept already put out, out there on social media and everything. So like, you know, we were very set in stone about what we wanted to do when we found the right space. We looked at, I think, five or six different locations. One of them was actually the old LaRue that I worked at because uh, we were like, you know, that that would be a perfect location. But the building was just taken care of by the building owner. They wanted way too much rent for the, the space that it was in. Uh, so we just decided to go away from that. The health department was also going to give us a lot of trouble with that space. And it, it just wasn't worth it for what it was going to cost. When Chris Fuller from Crafted reached out with her space, we were kind of at a standstill. We were like, we've looked at every place that we can and, and nothing has just really clicked for us yet. The name itself, I heard that comes from playing in the woods as a kid, but that's part of it, right? That's not the whole thing behind it. The way that Tal tells it, it sounds so creepy. I'm like, you know, like a kid running around the woods playing with a machete. You know, when we were thinking about names for our restaurant, we, you know, we wanted something that was bold, one word, you know, that was kind of the thing at the time was like getting away from that kind of way to name like a 90s restaurant or it's like Rose's Garden, you know, and stuff like that. We, we wanted something bold, just in your face. We just kind of threw that name out there one day and it like clicked. And yeah, I did. Like when I was a kid, I was super into like Army Navy stuff. And like I had a machete and pretended I was in like the movie Platoon, you know. But I, I would say like something about the name just clicked, you know. It was different. It was big. It was bold. A lot of people think that it's machete or like based from that movie, which is a little or like whatever. But yeah, it has nothing to do with that movie. When you're cooking out of the kitchen there in the house... What was the biggest challenge with doing kind of that dinner series for start out as like 12 people and it expanded to like 20 or whatever? But what was the biggest challenge that you found cooking in that environment? The dishwasher. Yeah. Not having a commercial dishwasher. We only had so many plates, you know, so for a, a 10 course menu serving 30 people and you got to get those plates back each round because, you know, we didn't have this stock by plates where we, you know, each course had a different plate. You know, we had to... We had to be very frugal with stuff like that. So having just, you know, your standard household sink that fits about 10, 12 plates, maybe. And we've got our whole course coming back and we've got to get them washed and ready to plate the next course. You know, that was difficult. We quickly learned that we needed to hire someone just to stand there and, and scrub dishes for the entirety of that dinner. But even still, yeah, it, it was probably that and just the cleanup at the end of the night because it's it's just so much different than a, a commercial kitchen. And we also, you know, we wanted to leave it better than we found it. You know, Tal's, Tal's wife was super supportive of us as well. And we're just in her home every month. Just, we didn't really make a mess, but in there just making a mess, you know, using their smart oven. There's just shit everywhere. Uh, speed racks in their kitchen, you know, it, it just looked crazy. You know, our, our dry storage was in their basement and it took up their whole basement. It, it was a crazy thing to see. 
when you take over Chris Fuller's restaurant, winds up kind of leaving the industry just because it's COVID and all that stuff is happening. Is it a true kind of turnkey transition to that space? Did you guys have to do any updating to the decor or anything? Yeah, we, I mean, we definitely, we brought in, you know, all new chairs and uh, we did a new bar top, a lot of different, we brought in a lot of new like wood paneling. We actually tiled the floors ourselves because uh, the health department was like, you got to redo all the floors in here. So like I did all the floor tiling behind the bar and like the front kitchen. We basically had a couple of people just in here tiling for like a month and a half. And yeah, we, I mean, we definitely wanted to make it ours. It wasn't like fully turnkey. The health department wanted a lot of stuff changed too, even though it was a fully functioning restaurant when we took it over. Uh, but yeah, we definitely put our touches on everything. And then we left a little bit like the subway tiles. We kind of liked that vibe. And we brought in a local artist to do a couple of murals on the walls. But we just kind of modernized it a little bit and made it a little simpler. Turnkey in a restaurant doesn't really happen that much in the industry. Why is that? Is it because usually it's a, a separate landlord? So it's like the person that's running the restaurant doesn't own the building kind of thing. So that usually leads to the issues or like, because I mean, we had a couple of places here that tried to do it. A guy was selling the entire restaurant kind of concept. And I think only one of them wound up getting purchased out of like the three he was doing during COVID. So I'm assuming it has to do with that disconnect. Like just the person doesn't own the building. I think it has a lot to do with that. And I, I think also, you know, if COVID had never happened, I think we would see more people buying existing restaurants. I just, even here, there's not a lot of restaurants opening up right now. And I know in a bigger food city, that's a different situation, but it's a big thing to take on, I guess, you know, maybe it's cheaper to just sell it versus like kind of just convert it to a new place and change, switch ownership over. Even a turnkey place is never fully turnkey. You know, it, I don't know about the health department in other cities, but in Greensboro, they are, they are tough. They do not work with you. They're, they are not for the small business owner. They, they will work against you on every single thing, you know, for a restaurant that was literally had a hundred sanitation score running fine and then shut down. And then we take it over, not even a couple months later, they wanted all this renovating done, all these things done that we were like, okay, well, you were letting them run like this before. So, you know, what's, what's the problem? Like it's clean in here. Apparently that's kind of their process. Like if, if you're taking over a space, it doesn't matter how up to code it is. Like they're going to make you change some stuff. They're, they're tough here. Uh, so I would, I would still say it's not fully turnkey. You know, we still had to invest quite a bit of money into getting this place up and running, not only cosmetic stuff, but you know, stuff like health department and all that. Were you able to push back on any of the stuff that they wanted? Like, is it like they give you a list of 10 things and you're like, all right, like where's like one or two that I can kind of push back on? And like, you can try, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's like they determine if you open or not. You can, I guess you can only give them so much pushback. You know, I mean, they wanted new water heaters installed, even though the water heater that was existing here was basically brand new and fully functional. So we're like, why? And it's almost like they're just like, they just want to see if you'll do it. Like they want you to prove yourself to them. It's it's weird. It's, it's like a weird dominant thing almost. Now, when you guys take over the existing restaurant and everything, you guys put your touches on it, but you were able to keep most of the staff from the previous business, right? And just kind of bring them into the new place? I, not really. I mean, obviously completely different concepts from, from crafted street food and what we were trying to do. We 
you know, encouraged Chris Fuller to, to relocate most of her staff to her other restaurants. Cause I guess at the time she also had some bad apples in her other restaurants. So she was like, I've got some positions to fill, you know? And I think we did take like one or two servers from crafted street food. But other than that, we, we kind of just started with like a clean slate. Cuisine wise. I mean, you guys are, you know, self-label as modern American, which is a pretty broad term, I think. So what would you describe it as, you know, aside from that term, you know, narrowing it down a little bit? Uh, so we're definitely like a small plates restaurant. I, I would say that our food is very designed to be like modeled after a tasting menu, right? We started out as a supper club tasting menu concept, and we actually still do that. Um, once every other month, we will do a ticketed event where we, we shut down and do like ticketed only theme supper club and it'll be you know five to ten course menu even our our normal dinner menu is kind of designed after something that you would get in a tasting menu it's just all a cart and a slightly larger portion uh other than that i mean our food's really really based on like nostalgic flavors stuff that we all like loved as kids you know we definitely do variations of like cereal milk ice creams and stuff like that We've done like a play on a good humor bar, stuff like that. So I would say it's it's mostly rooted in nostalgia, whether that's from being a kid or even, you know, like the first time I had grilled Napa cabbage five years ago or something. So we really try to build on just flavors that we love and we put them out there and people generally love them too. Now there's a decent amount of Asian influence in the menu. I mean, there's yuzu on there, bok choy, katsu. So is that a region that you kind of gravitate towards, like that style of cuisine, kind of incorporating those flavors and stuff too? Yes and no. I mean, we're we're very broad with what we like to do. I mean, at one menu, you'll see a lot more like South American influence. And then another menu, you'll see a lot of like Asian influence. Um, we've had a lot more kind of broad Asian influence lately because we're currently working on our second concept. And so we've just kind of been playing around with those flavors a little bit more. So when you guys switch over your menus, is it more about just whatever is inspiring you at that moment? Or is it about seasonality of ingredients working within that box? Everything comes into play. I mean, yeah, we'll definitely always base it on the season that we're in. But yeah, sometimes like we don't want to just stay in this box of like, let's do a wine dinner. Let's do something that we've never done before and try it out. Uh, so our next pop-up is going to be a wine dinner actually, but it's going to be a, a dueling Tom dinner. So we're going to take um, a couple of our best wine purveyors and get their, get two of their Psalms in here. And basically they'll do, we'll do like a wine dinner-ish menu and then they'll kind of battle it out on who can pair the best wines with each dish. And then at the end, we're going to give all of our guests a little like ticket and they can kind of choose like what went well, you know. So yeah, we're like, in, instead of just doing a basic wine dinner, let's do that where we let somebody else come and like see who can do the better pairing. Try to make it at least somewhat unique and new and, and different, but we definitely focus heavy on seasons and, and what we're like currently inspired by. So when you guys opened the brick and mortar, you know, the physical restaurant, it was during, you know, the pandemic and everything. So did that help or hurt? Because, you know, on the one hand, it could hurt the restaurant, you know, dining shut down and everything, but it could help because you have a little bit more time to kind of find your footing, kind of finalize things, even though, you know, you were doing the the in-home kind of private dinner series there before it. So 
looking back on it, do you think it helped or hurt or didn't really make a difference? It definitely hurt mentally. We had spent so long working on this new, exciting thing where we're really putting ourselves out there and and putting everything into this to do this food that we want to do. And then all of a sudden, you know, a, a week or two after opening, it's like, nope, you're not going to do that. You're not going to get to do what you're passionate about. You, you're going to do what you got to do to make this survive until you can do what you really want to do. Yeah, COVID, I think we were open for literally, we did a soft opening and then we were open for a week and then COVID shut everything down. We are so fortunate that, so Tao, his experience and background is is marketing. So he had already built this huge following for us on social media and our mailing list and all that. And I don't know if we would have survived without that huge backing that we already had. So luckily, we were able to pivot overnight. We we evaluated all of our inventory and you know all we could do was to go. And obviously, the food that we do is not compatible with to go. Overnight, we went from machete to we did a fried chicken sandwich, a bolognese, you know, like a pasta bake, some french fries as a side. Like we we just we pivoted 180 and we just did that for a while. You know, the whole time we were doing to go, we would do a Sunday brunch where we would basically pre-sell the items on top and then people would just come pick it up and it, it, we'd be slammed trying to get this to go food out. We did like cinnamon rolls and then just some basic brunch stuff. Uh, but, you know, it kept us afloat and, and did what it needed to do. We hated it. We were like, we, we've got to do this, basically. If we want to have anything to come back to, like, we, we have to do it. So for you, what's been the biggest challenge, you know, moving into not just an executive chef role, but owner, you know, leader, part owner, having that aspect of running the restaurant, not just the kitchen? What's been the biggest challenge that you've come across so far? There's a lot of challenges like for back of house sourcing is a big one, especially post COVID sourcing stuff is is very difficult, especially for a menu that that changes as often as ours. I would say other than that, it, staffing has definitely been difficult. And, and, you know, we're definitely not the type of place where we're like, nobody wants to work. You know, uh, we we pay a pretty good wage here. And I, I would just say Greensboro, you know, even without COVID happening, was never a big food city. Having people come to your door wanting to work in your restaurant was was less of an occurrence than in a bigger food city. Post-COVID, staffing has been very difficult. We're basically like, I don't care what your experience is. As long as you're willing to learn or try something that you've never done before, like, you know, I'll work with you. I'll show you everything that I know. As long as your, your head's here every day, like, let's do it. I would say staffing, sourcing have been the the biggest things. And I, I say post-COVID because that's kind of the only world that we know because we, you know, we opened at that time. It's been a constant transition since then. In terms of sourcing, are you talking like certain ingredients you have to go to different purveyors or whatever now where you wouldn't have had to before just because either they don't have it or it's marked up or whatever? Yeah. I mean, there's basically no consistency with with product sourcing for us. Compared to, you know, before COVID, you know, I, I did ordering at plenty of places before that, and there's never really an issue. You know, once in a while, something wouldn't show up. But, you know, we have such a small menu here, and it changes so often. It's like we're really relying on this stuff to come in. Otherwise, we're going to be 86 half of our menu, which is already a small menu. It's like even 
last week we were doing a menu switchover and like three of our main ingredients for three different dishes just you know didn't show up purveyors didn't say they weren't coming in there's nowhere that we can go and buy this product in town so it was just like we were we were just out of it for the night you know we were fully booked and then you know when you have a small menu and you're out of three items they're going to hit everything else harder and then so we're running out of other stuff and it's like it's like fuck man i can't catch a break if y'all are going to not send something at least tell me or, or tell me you're short on inventory so i can somewhat plan ahead um I, I would say that's like a weekly thing now versus before it's like every once in a while but not something you have to worry about so i think last year you know machete got uh, nominated named a semi-finalist for the james beard best new restaurant award right how did you guys find out about that was it just you got a bunch of calls and text messages that day or did you get a heads up from somebody i found out from michael Knoll actually yeah he reached out on instagram said congrats on the nom I was like, what is he talking about? And then I was like, Nom. I was like, James Beard. And then I and then I Googled and and that was the first thing that came up. I was like, oh shit. Uh and I called Tao and he had no idea. And usually he's the one that's on top of, you know, press and stuff like that. So normally he's the one that tells me about it. He had no idea and he just started screaming on the phone. His wife started screaming. It was, it was a good time. So like you mentioned earlier, you guys are readying a second concept, second place, Yokai. What has led to kind of wanting to open this izakaya styled eatery that you guys are getting ready to open? We've always wanted to have a more casual, laid back spot where we don't take stuff so seriously. We want a very industry forward place for everybody to get off and come have a drink, get some food. And then Tao on his own is, you know, coming from the video game world, super inspired by all things, you know, Japanese, Asian influence. And it's just something we've always wanted to do. It's also something that we don't really have in town here. You know, we've got like a ramen place down the road. We finally just got a good Korean fried chicken place. But other than that, it's like our one of our main drives for doing things here is is like I want a place that I want to go eat. You know, like like if like a place that I would go to in Nashville or Asheville or Charleston, like I want a place that like chefs want to go eat, right? And that's one of our driving forces for for when we think of concepts and things that we want to do here is like, where do chefs want to go? Is opening the second concept easier or harder than the first? This isn't a turnkey spot. It's a it's an old laundromat. So we're building it from nothing, basically, versus with Machete, we at least had some sort of a layout of like how much kitchen space we had, what equipment we needed and what we already had. Over here, you know, we had to bring somebody on to help kind of design all of this. And it's a really, really small square to fit everything into over there. I would say the biggest issue is kind of the city with like permitting and stuff. They're, they just kind of drag their feet. It's, you know, basically Tao and Kevon, our general manager, and I are, we're ready to go. Like everything's ready. We've got everything down to like what uniforms we're ordering. Everything is set up. We've got the alcohol license set up. We're just waiting on the city. Who knows? They, they take as long as they, they need to. So for us, it's just kind of a waiting process. Uh, we're looking at probably June, early July. For an opening or for construction? Basically, the way it's working is like we get a little construction done and now we've got to wait on the city to permit for some more construction. 
it's like one thing at a time and we're like why don't we just get it all done at once but it, it's been a weird weird process with the space a bar seems to always be you know kind of this popular second concept you know when a restaurant or a chef or whatever it kind of expands why is that is it just because alcohol sales are that much greater than food sales it's funny that you say that because even before we conceptualized yokai it was like unsaid but understood that our next concept was going to be a bar and like we were looking at different spaces for a bar and we never really talked about like what you just asked like why why is that uh why are we opening a bar with food but i think it a lot of it has to do with like the concept of yokai where like you know it would be cool to have like an izakaya themed bar here that does sake cocktails and sake slushies and stuff like that and so from there it kind of turned into what the food concept is for yokai but yeah that and we just wanted something small casual fun for industry people to come to and that's kind of what we gravitated towards we also didn't want our second concept to be this huge expense putting all this money into this this big new thing uh down the road yeah we want to do you know a big wood-fired restaurant or something but we were thinking for the next thing just small real small profitable let's get that open so we kind of touched on it a little bit but you know charlotte and raleigh are probably the the big food cities in north carolina that kind of dominate all the food media headlines where does greensboro kind of fall in the North Carolina food city lineup? Is it third? Is it fourth? Is it fifth? Like, where does it kind of in the hierarchy sit? It's probably fourth or fifth. I mean, the thing about Greensboro is it's like, we look at it as like just a little behind, right? There's a lot of new money coming into Greensboro. There's a lot of development going on with the downtown area. And it's basically following those footsteps of like a young Durham. And Durham, I would say, is like, you know, they kind of compete with Raleigh on their food scene. But a lot of the steps that like, especially our downtown community is taking is kind of following those footsteps of of Durham. So we see ourselves, you know, in five to 10 years being a much more notable food city, right? But we wanted to be one of the pioneers for that, at least in the restaurant world. Yeah, from what I can tell, like Greensboro seems very sandwich heavy. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, sandwich, burger, and like, how do I say this? Gentrified taco places, like places that serve eight, eight to ten dollar tacos. Yeah, really heavy on that stuff. We don't know why. There's a lot of people that seem to just they're like, oh, I love Food Network. I want to open a restaurant. You know, I make like a banging southwestern corn dip for football Sunday. So like, let's do a restaurant based around that. All of the real things that come with running a restaurant come into play, and then it's like, nope. But yeah, we we get a lot of that. A lot of taco places, craft burger places want to open up. We're hoping to see, you know, and we were hoping to inspire people but with machete by, you know, hoping to see people want to open more like chef-driven restaurants, whether it's and when we say that, we don't mean like kind of a carbon copy of machete, but something where it is chef-driven and they're doing what they're passionate about, whatever that is. Um, that's what we want to see. I want, you know, I want to see more Asheville, Durham type places. Do you think the scene in Greensboro will continue then to progress or will people who's, you know, even if they open a restaurant in Greensboro, they'll still be drawn to the other markets to move to or because they're always competing where you look at it and it's like, well, I could, Charlotte's going to be more expensive, 
but you know, it has this kind of restaurant ecosystem versus if I open something in Greensboro, like I'm kind of all alone, you know, there might be a couple other things there, but. For people to choose Greensboro over Charlotte or Durham or Asheville, there has to be the demand that pulls them here. And the only real demand right now is that it would be cheaper to at least open up. And, you know, we downtown, like we just got a performing arts center, you know, things are are coming to Greensboro, especially downtown Greensboro, that are creating that demand and a need for more local restaurants and things like that. I, I just think we're at this kind of like waiting period. You know, we're waiting for that demand to really pull more people in. You know, we don't have a lot of things like Asheville and Durham and Raleigh have. So we we need those attractions to kind of bring, make people realize like, oh, like this place, like right near the Performing Arts Center is open. Rent's not bad. And it's going to get hella foot traffic. So like, why not do this thing that I'm passionate about there? We just, we really need that pull from the city. And they've been on this kind of weird, like when I worked at LaRue, downtown was like this place where nobody went, right? It was like, there was no coffee shops, hair salons, like there was nothing downtown. It was like a couple of nightclubs. For the most part, pe- the consensus was like, people don't come downtown at night. And now it's like, all you see is like families walking around, like it's it's a cool place to come. So it's definitely changed over the years. And I think that that pull for new exciting restaurants is here, just kind of taking time. What's next for you professionally? I mean, obviously you have Machete is running full steam. You got Yukai in the works, kind of mentioned maybe down the road doing a live fire thing, but anything else on the horizon or just kind of getting Yukai open? I've got a list of stuff that that I want to do, but I also love collaborating with Tao on like what our next thing's going to be. But yeah, like we'd love to do some sort of either wood fire or even all charcoal concept where everything's like cooked over charcoal. That'd be tough with the fire department because they barely let us have this charcoal grill here. But other than that, like I'd love to do a pizza place. We'd love to do a little food truck concept too. Lots of things that we want to do. Just, yeah. We're going to take it one one small step at a time. Tao can get a little ambitious. And I'm like, no, no, let's let's perfect what we have first. And then and then think about that. Also, I've, I've got a fiance and a six month old at home. So like life is moving really quick right now. So I'd, I'd like for it to just slow down a little. So this next question comes from Chef Jeff Harris of Nolia in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. He's the previous guest on the podcast. So he left behind for you. Would you ever put your favorite dish on the menu if it's a dish you did not make? So essentially what he's asking is the favorite thing that you've ever kind of eaten, had, that you've never made yourself, you know, you never came up with it. Would you ever put a recreation of that on your menu? There's, I think there's a fine line between straight ripping someone's dish, right? And then doing a dish inspired by that dish, right? And I think especially in like, the chef world and restaurants these days, like pretty much everybody that's doing cutting edge food is like pulling from someone else's food somehow. Right. That's a good question. Like the arpeggio egg, right. You know, the little top the egg, dump the egg out and then basically make like a, like an aerated foam out of it. Like how many people have that on the menu? They just don't call it an arpeggio egg. So I think like drawing inspiration from something and kind of putting your own spin or like if you're from the South, like putting country ham flavor in that, right? Is like, I think that's totally cool and acceptable. But I guess like a straight rip out of a cookbook or something, which I've seen people do is like, at least like make it like 
an ingredient you love to work with that replaces their ingredient, right? Other than that, yeah, I, I'm not against drawing inspiration or, or basically doing the same dish as long as you're kind of putting your touch on it. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? What do you see as like the biggest food trend in the next like five years? You know, like we've had a tapas boom. We've had like a craft pizza boom. Like what's next? So this next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, if you could pick up your restaurant as it is now and move it to any other city in the U.S. at no cost, which city would you pick and why? I guess considering I can't just say, oh, we'd stay here. I guess like Nashville, honestly, because I would just love to live in Nashville. I would probably gravitate towards somewhere like, like I think that we would be successful in any sort of food city. But so I would base it on like, where do I want to be? Like, where do I want to, what neighborhood do I want to live in to where I can like go to work and then go get like cold soba from this like amazing soba place or something like that, you know? So if anything, I'd base it more on like, what do I want to eat and what kind of culture do I want to dive into? But I would say I would, oh man, I would love to live in Nashville. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast. So nice compare and contrast across all the episodes for the listeners. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far when you look back on it? I would definitely say like real, real life experience would be Kim Floresca and Daniel Ryan. I'm sorry to them for how much of a shit show I was at the time, but man, they, they, they changed my life in a big way. I, I would not be, you know, as humble as I am or, or just the person that I am if it wasn't without them. They, they made me see everything from a completely different view. I definitely attribute that to where I am now. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? I mean, I got to say our mandolin. We use it for everything. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I usually give, person gets stuck at the airport, flight gets canceled, reach out to you, you guys are closed. Hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. Go to Winston and go to uh, Hef's Burger Club. They actually they just got a James Beard nom uh, this year. It's a fucking good burger. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurants. A place you have not visited to, but you still want to travel to one day. And then also restaurant you have not eaten at, but you still want to get to one day and experience. Gotta go to Catbird Seat in Nashville. Still haven't been in or anywhere from that restaurant group. Oaxaca, all the way. I gotta make it to Oaxaca, Mexico. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I would say the craziest thing I've, that I can remember is is two cooks literally fist fighting on the line and then going outside fist fighting more and then coming back in and acting like it never happened all while we're doing like 500 people and somehow like nothing got 86 or nothing was on a hold food or drink guilty pleasures or anything fast food candy whatever that you know is pretty unhealthy for you but you just can't help yourself definitely taco bell taco bell all the way even though it's like the healthiest fast food place so whenever someone answers Taco Bell, because this is a pretty frequent answer that we get for that question, what is your Taco Bell order? Uh, the party pack. I, I love that. Like something about those just hard shell tacos with like barely anything in them is like I love it, and just smothered in the Diablo sauce. That and like a couple beers, I'm I'm happy into the night. What is one cookbook everyone should own? Professional chef, at home chef. What's the one book that you think everybody should have? It's got to be a hard tie between the French Laundry and the Professional Chef, but I would say the French Laundry just just because it answers the why. 
Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created, kind of looking back on your career, you can point to this as almost like your aha moment. Like when you made this dish, you knew you could be a professional chef one day. We put this dish on at LaRue and it was an escargot with like a basically like a blue cheese shallot cream sauce. It was really simple, like really bistro Frenchy, but it somehow Greensboro being not huge food city, you know, you're going to turn a lot of people away with escargot and somehow it was our best selling item for like years. It wasn't super creative, but something about it, I was, I was just kind of stepping out of my comfort zone a little bit and, and realized that I should just step out of my comfort zone more. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there a moment episode scene about him that always kind of stands out to you? If you weren't, is there another culinary personality, uh, Emeril, uh, Guy Fieri, uh, Julia Child, that you always kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? I mean, definitely Anthony Bourdain. Before I knew I wanted to be a chef, I loved Anthony Bourdain just because I loved watching his show on Travel Channel. Um, I loved his like constant, not only the way that he talks and, and the way that he thinks about life, but also I, I just loved... I related to his constant sense of just like pessimism and dread because I just like I, I always gravitated towards that. It was such a like way to go about life, but still live life so beautifully, you know. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. My Instagram is just Kevin Cottrell, my full name. They can email me, Kevin at machetegso.com. Account for the restaurant is at machetegso. Uh, and you guys are open Tuesday through Saturday, right? You can get reservations uh, through the website too as well. Yeah, we do everything through Cox, So, And then you'll have, I'm sure there'll be a new handle for Yokai when it opens and everything. Or Yokai GSO, right? Yep. This was awesome. I'm able to kind of sometimes just find new restaurants and, you know, from people I've had on the podcast, you know, they always recommend something. And, and it's cool to get that connectivity to have somebody on who's been recommended by a previous guest and... Like I said, the food looks amazing and it's really cool to see you guys have success in such a non-food city. Greensboro, I don't think is a destination for most anybody. I don't think it's a destination food city. And I think people forget about that. A lot of people, you know, live in different places here in Columbus. You know, we're not a food city um, by any means, even though we're a capital city, but it's growing and it's, and it's getting there. And we have other food cities around us with Cincinnati and Cleveland and stuff. And you just forget that Sometimes there's just this great restaurant in this small town, and that's the thing. It's the only reason why you would ever go to that small town, and it's the only reason why you keep coming back. And it's, or if you live there, like that's the place that you go to, like all the time, because it's your favorite place. And it gets lost, I think, on a lot of us, especially when you live in a city or you're close to a city where you have all these different options, and you kind of forget, like, oh yeah, there was once upon a time, like where you lived in this place, and there was like three restaurants that you actually enjoyed and like you pray to God that they don't close <laughs> like, because you're like, what am I going to do? So it looks like awesome food. I can't wait to try it. Uh, looking forward to when we make it to North Carolina, South Carolina region, we got some friends and family in the area. So it's always a, a possibility to come up sooner and later with uh, family events and stuff like that too, as well. So definitely be making the trek out there and also probably checking out uh, the burger club too, as well. Cause I want to know what a James Beard nominated burger tastes like, you know? It's just a really good smash burger, but he nailed, I would say one of the most overlooked parts of a burger is the bun and he nailed it. It's not this fancy brioche bun. It's like the perfect cross between like a potato roll 
and like a heavy buttered bun. It's just like it holds up all the way through the burger. Amazing. If you ever need anything from us, feel free to reach out. Let us know. Always an open invitation to come back on the podcast whenever you need to want. New menu, Yokai opens, you want to talk about it for 15 minutes, whatever. We always want to support everybody who comes on as much as we can because they supported us by coming on. So always an open invitation, but otherwise stay in touch and we'll be seeing you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Big thanks again to Kevin for taking some time out of his day, coming on the podcast, chat about his career and working in Greensboro, open in Machete, kind of what's next too as well. So again, you can follow him on Instagram at Kevin Cottrell. Uh, you can also follow the restaurant at Machete GSO and then also at Yokai GSO, which will be opening sometime here in the next couple of months so over the course of this year. But you can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com, and follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you use. You can find us on any podcast app. Just go ahead and search SpoonMob on there, and it will be the orange kind of icon there. Hit the follow button. You can also use our link in our Instagram bio. The link tree will get you there too as well. Feel free to email us, SpoonMob at Yahoo.com, or use the contact portal on the website to write in any questions, comments, feedback. Appreciate everybody who's been listening uh, as we continue to push out new episodes. So if you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support and continued listenership. I'm looking forward to the latest episodes to be released and hope you guys have been enjoying everything we're doing. Uh, More great stuff coming down the road here. So thanks for the continued support. Continue to help spread the word. And we will talk to you guys next week.